You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Dr. Faustus expected more from his education. After a lifetime of study, his professional options, philosophy, medicine, law, and theology all seemed disappointingly ordinary. He is, of course, not the first to have this experience. At a societal level, the promise of knowledge is power, especially once it has become technology. At an individual level, what education seems to make us is an insignificant part of a formidable machine. For Faustus, the only way to make book learning great again is to extend it to the domain of black magic. And yet all this seems to earn him is an all-expenses-paid European vacation, notwithstanding the perk of having Mephistopheles as tour guide, to be followed by eternal damnation. What's the point of selling your soul to the devil? How do we avoid subordinating our own search for meaning to the desire for power? This is Wes Alwyn. This is Aaron Alonik. And you're listening to Subtext. Okay, Aaron, we're back. We're back. It's been... Uh, summer hiatus and now we're ready to get going again it was hard to drag myself from the pool and and talk about this <laughs> that's right it's been all <laughs> shits and giggles all summer long <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah we were gonna do his girl friday and then we started talking about marlo's faustus because you were taking a um course on it for school and you really i don't know if you loved marlo in particular or that it was just the teacher I'm still in the middle of this class, so I feel like this is a sort of clandestine operation, which is actually befitting of Marlowe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the class is great. It's this Renaissance drama class. We're just focusing on Marlowe and Johnson. I did Dr. Faustus. I was really intrigued by it. And unfortunately, we had to move on in the class. So I thought this was a way to kind of prolong my ecstasy, the 24 years that I'm planning to devote to Dr. Faustus. So his Girl Friday will have to wait, but of course, I love, I love His Girl Friday. Well, it's important to have, I think, Dr. Faustus under a belt before we move on to His Girl Friday. <laughs> it actually probably is. Foundational. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny. So Marlo, I knew little about him except that maybe the spying stuff and also that he got stabbed in the eye, right? He mm-hmm. apparently tried to stab someone. He got stabbed with his own knife in his eye in a bar fight. And that wasn't the first bar fight he had been in. I think there was a warrant out for his arrest at the time for being in a bar fight. And he was also known for being, he'd been accused of being an uh, atheist and a blasphemer. And the other thing I knew is that I, you know, I just glanced at the play and thought, well, why read Marlowe when you could read Shakespeare? And just in the past, when I've looked at passages from the play, I wasn't that excited by it. And this time around reading it, by comparison to Shakespeare and all the wordplay and what goes on in Shakespeare, it's definitely less exciting. And then I watched um, the Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor performance, which is silly in many ways, but it's also quite gripping. And little snippets of other performances and then reread it while taking notes. And then just reading passages to myself, I developed a much greater appreciation of Marlowe's talent doing all of that. The class that I'm in is... Uh not very well populated to say the least. And this professor that we're taking from is normally known for being, you know, the Shakespeare guy. So I think there was some disappointment when the course listing was released and he was focusing on Marlowe and Johnson. And I was kind of delighted by that, not because I don't love Shakespeare and not because there isn't so much in Shakespeare that still, of course, escapes me that, you know, I, whole plays that I haven't read, obviously, or, or just the fact that there are just 
incredible riches there, um, even within the things that I had read. But I had this attitude like, you know what? It's, this is great. Like, as an opera lover, you go to the opera and if they're doing La Boheme for the you know, 120th time, you kind of want to shoot yourself. <laughs> you know, I would rather see something different every once in a while. And so that was kind of the attitude I had going in. And then the first day of classes really intrigued me when the professor said something like, with Shakespeare, we get these problems of attribution because, you know, everyone's always trying to prove that somebody else really wrote certain plays because of the fact that Shakespeare has this incredibly kind of negative capability, which we've talked about in other episodes on Shakespeare plays, in which he sort of contains dozens of people inside of him. So the professor said, you know, Marlowe and Johnson, no one could ever mistake them for each other or any other playwright for their style. They're so particular in their style. And that, I think, just was really intriguing to me to read a playwright who is so himself from the same era, sort of like anti-Shakespeare. It's something that's interesting to me right now in thinking about my own work and what makes a style and what makes somebody um, individualistic and recognizable immediately. You know, what makes someone even like easily subject to parody it's a concept that I'm interested in on a lot of different levels. Or self-parody. Um, exactly. <laughs> is what I run up against frequently. But. <laughs> no, self-parody is really revealing. I think. <laughs> one's ability to do self-parody, I think it's very rare. Yeah, it's the unintentional self-parody that, that I'm good at. But So you're saying, so Marlowe has a particular identifiable style? Is that the idea? Because he seems very vanilla to me. Yeah, he has, I think, a set of subjects, maybe. I mean, this would be a, a conversation that would encompass more plays than Faustus and also probably more than I've read yet. Um, I'm still in the thicket of the Marlowe section of this course. And so I'm still kind of trying to piece everything together. But Marlowe is the way that I've been led to understand him. He's someone who just doesn't give a crap <laughs> about anything or anyone. He's out to get you. He will destroy you. The plays kind of destroy everything in their path. We read uh, his play, Tamburlaine. Basically, the plot is that Tamburlaine is this great conqueror. He comes into a kingdom and he's like, I'm going to beat you. And the guy's like, no, I'm going to beat you. I'm better than you. And then Tamburlaine just like whoops their ass and then moves on to the next place. And the same thing is repeated over and over and over again until he's just <laughs> conquered like the entire world. Like the trajectory of the play is just climax after climax after climax. And Tamburlaine as a figure is this kind of evil but sexy destroyer who you kind of like want to see just like stomp on the little Lego set that somebody has painstakingly erected and just like, bam, step all over it. And so the fact that he's this incredibly magnetic hero, but at the same time, you know, whether he's killing Muslims or Christians over the course of the play, the allegiances of an English Elizabethan era audience would have been really turned upside down and over and over again, watching mm. something like that. That's kind of how I see it. Like he's destroying theater as he is writing these plays. He's destroying our expectations of theater. He's destroying almost like a narrative arc of theater. He's destroying in Faustus, destroying the concept of the morality play, which was sort of the chief play up until the Renaissance era. That was the chief genre. So I just finished reading The Jew of Malta and I still have a bit more to go with Marlowe, but that doesn't speak much to style, but it does to kind of an overarching vision of what Marlowe is doing. And the morality play, 
I think it started out as the portrayal of biblical stories, and then it developed into their characters representing, say, virtues and vices, and there's a lesson to be learned from the play. Really, the beginning of theater in England, they're didactic, they're allegorical. So the whole point is like the battle to save the soul. I think the term in class that was used was the psychomachia, mm-hmm. just like soul, soul battle, right? So really, really obvious, like very silly character names. I think the most popular play or the origin of them all was Everyman. I mm-hmm, think the character's right. name was Everyman, right? And there are like characters like knowledge and good works and all that kind of thing. And I think that where that morality play got kind of turned inside out a little bit already is with the rise of Protestantism and specifically Calvinism, where this is like your chief form of entertainment. But then you have to kind of ask yourself, okay, who are these morality plays for at this point? When we no longer have this battle for the soul that's inherent in other denominations of Christianity, but Mm -hmm. within Calvinism, you know, you have either you're divinely elect and you're going to heaven no matter what, right? Or you're a reprobate and you're going to hell. What's the point of these morality plays, except as a kind of like self-torture for the right. person watching it, wondering whether or not they're picking up on, they've been given, you know, as, as a member of the elect, the divine insight to pick up on the incredibly obvious allegory within the play and therefore sort of confirm their own sense that they are, in fact, a member of the elect. Or I don't know. I mean, it can't possibly convert a reprobate because they're a reprobate. For Partially Examined Life, we just read Erasmus and recorded on Erasmus. So his Praise of Folly was published in 1511, and he had a bit of a public fight with Luther over the concept of free will. Mm. And Luther, who you've probably read some Luther, right? Oh, yes. And Erasmus, actually. Okay. And Erasmus is great. So he's a Catholic who wants to reform the church from within, and he's more, much more humble and good-natured and rhetorical and bent than Luther. And Luther is just a insane radical. So they had a <laughs> You're speaking my language yeah. about free will. <laughs> and I looked at both of them and I'm like, oh my God. And, you know, Erasmus is trying to be nice and Luther is like, you know, screw you. <laughs> <laughs> very contemptuous, very arrogant. But what I was going to say about that is, you know, I got a sense of, you know, the debate over free will, Protestantism. I think so for Luther, and this leads into Calvinism, but the idea is that there's no free will and getting into heaven is not a matter of good works. It's a matter of faith. So religion becomes less about, or not maybe not at all about, perfectibility and self-improvement and one's virtues. It becomes about something else. And Erasmus is much more on the, in a way, there's a pagan strand to it, right? Because there's a virtue ethics involved, but also it's sort of a more moderate version of Catholicism, right? So pare down the excesses, the things that had been happening that, you know, it wasn't just Luther who was critical of them, but, you know, with indulgences and this whole game of what you're going to do to save yourself or your loved ones from hell. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's sort of like weeding the materialistic garden, I would call it. Hmm. This reliance on the material had really gotten out of hand with, you know, famous things like indulgences and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, indulgences exist, like that's still a concept within the Catholic church, but you can't pay for them anymore. <laughs> um, it's still uh, an interesting and, you know, I mean, depending on your belief system, if you're a Catholic, it's a, an incredibly useful concept. And I don't mean to say that flippantly. But this is more like the organized crime version, you know, it'd be a shame if something happened to your soul. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to need 10% every month. But yeah. Right. With the unchecked power of the church and the sort of growing, um, the level to which these had become excesses and needed reform, which as you suggest, you know, Erasmus and others, there was a movement in the church called the Counter-Reformation, which refuted the Reformation theology and also cleaned house from within, you know, because this was a problem that Catholics, of course, too recognized, at least Catholics of goodwill (laughs) recognized that this had become a problem. But this reliance upon the material, right, like sacraments, just a, a general sort of mediation between you and the divine, which is very important to Catholicism on a certain level, became very upsetting for Protestants. They wanted to mark their division with Catholicism with a total lack of dependence on anything like, you know, the material or any kind of mediation. And so it included, you know, doing good works, basically. The idea that anything could get you to heaven of your own will, or even just, you know, Catholics don't believe this either. Like they don't believe that your own will can get you into heaven necessarily, but that you're rather you're working with God. You're accepting God's grace in order to perform goodwill. So it's not like you can through your own might and strength, climb your way up the, up the ladder to heaven. It's obviously in cooperation with God's grace that any good can be done. This is a pretty standard Christian idea. Were you thinking of the word synergy? <laughs> yes, synergy, <laughs> right. In synergy with God, yes. Um, we can leverage the, trying to think of what the corporate speak would be. For <laughs> the adverlingus of uh, yeah. how to sell the... <laughs> yeah. What I'm getting at is just this idea that within Calvinism, you can't do anything good. You're either saved or you're not. And um, the process of discovering whether or not you're saved is through this like really deep and intense, constant and very punishing self-analysis and textual analysis of the Bible. Like if you can read the Bible properly, it's because God's given you the grace to read the Bible. It's because you're saved. Mm -hmm. And you can be tricked basically into thinking that you're saved when you're actually a reprobate, which is a terrifying prospect for people. And I should just say that, you know, to our listeners, like all of this is, I think, directly related to Faustus. That's why we're talking about it. We'll get there. It is important. And the other thing I want to say too, and this is, I think is also important background to the play because people may wonder in the beginning, what's all this stuff about him being unhappy with philosophy, medicine, law, and divinity. <laughs> you know, one of the other things that had happened during the Middle Ages is the rise of scholasticism, including the influence of Aristotle and mm-hmm. the point Erasmus was writing in his opinion, there were a lot of ridiculous, sort of arcane, esoteric, theological quibbles. And so a focus on highly analytic and logic chopping types of arguments to do with theology and, um, and, uh, and religion, which he, of course, contrasts in, uh, pra- in, in Praise of Folly to the simplicity of the apostles and of Christ. So there's a question there about the relationship between doing, engaging in these very, very intellectual activities and being religious. And then the other part of that, part of you know, the innovation of humanism is to revive not just the more analytical ancient texts, but to revive the influence of more rhetorical texts, history and, and literature and that sort of stuff. And so you, know, you, and you see it in the way that Erasmus writes, and, and it's a very like pleasing and, and well-written. It's an essay, you know, it's not a philosophical treatise. You know, one more thing to say is that is of a piece with his idea that, so he'd done some time as a monk, <laughs> done some time. So he was worried about empty ritual and ceremony that was devoid of any like real subjective content. The idea that, you know, you could just kind of in a very rote, 
unthinking way perform certain acts or ceremonies and that that was what your relationship to God consisted of. This is all about, you know, one's mental and spiritual comportment, whether that's being Mm -hmm. undermined by over-intellectualism or undermined by the ritualistic or something like that. So yes, it sounds like we're (laughs) running off on a tangent, but this is all going to come up in our discussion. Just one more piece of background that I think you can probably fill in better than I am is the source of this legend for Marlowe. There was a German, so apparently Faust was a real guy or Faustus was a real guy. Then it became a kind of, obviously it's not real as it's presented, but became a kind of legend. And then it was put down by someone in German. And I forget when that happens. And then it was translated into English by someone who took a lot of liberties with that. But that's the source for for Marlowe of this. Yeah, that's right. And I think that'll get us right to the start of the play as Elizabethan era attendees uh, going into Dr. Faustus, just knowing that we're familiar with the Faustus legend. And so they would be as well. They would know this. They would know this, the basic outline of the story. It was common knowledge at this time. So that's really important. They are going to a morality play about someone who they know in the end, you know, spoiler alert, will be damned forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so then one might argue, why then go to see this? What is the point here? What is the narrative arc in which something is a foregone conclusion? And it's about a guy who's really, really bad and does bad stuff. Is this going to edify us as potential members of the elect? Is that possible if one is elect? Do we actually care whether or not Faustus achieves salvation at the end? Like, are we rooting for him? And if we are, then are we rooting for a reprobate? And is that, does that make us bad? And does that make us reprobates? It's a little bit of a brain teaser, a different term I was thinking of for that, but I'll call it a brain teaser. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. In my second reading, I had the intrusive... <laughs> thoughts having to do with uh, contemporary sitcoms as usual. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if the comic relief were actually at Faustus' expense? And Hmm. you could do a sort of office version of this where Wagner, instead of going off and doing the silly things that he does, (laughs) he does the equivalent of kind of looking at the camera every time Faustus says something stupid or something like that. Faust would be Dwight, of course, and Jim would be (laughs) Wagner. Right? Well, no, I was thinking, yeah, Jim would be Wagner. No, I was thinking of Faustus is Michael Scott. Oh, right? sure. So sure. he's the boss. And the way this starts out, he has this very inflated self-conception, this kind of mania or grandiosity, however you want to put it. And he's doing something that we are, at some point, we're all tasked with doing this, right? If we go to college, if we're getting an education of any kind that's going to serve some sort of professional purpose later on, which is like, Choosing something, making a choice, specializing. (laughs) That's like his dilemma in the beginning. And because of his grandiose state of mind, nothing is actually good enough for him. So starting with philosophy, it's a very grand thing. It's something that um, if you want to be grandiose, a lot of people can do that and go there for that. Or really any academic, right? Humanities specialty. You can convince yourself that what you're doing is awfully, awfully important. <laughs> mm-hmm. Doing something with ideas something or, or something artistic, something that's going to change the world, deeply uh, affect people. And then you can give that same sort of rationale for 
law or medicine, it becomes slightly more different and more practical, right? But the idea is that you can heal people, you can make lots of money, you be respected. I'm unclear on the actual situation. It, like, it looks to me, okay, this is someone who's just gotten a degree who's making this sort of decision, but you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. And then the final step is divinity. So of the professions that he's considering, the fourth one is divinity, and he rejects that as kind of being depressing in a way that's reminiscent of what you've been talking about, right? So it's what will be, shall be. In other words, we're all destined to sin, and therefore we're all destined to an everlasting death because of that sin. The turn is to magic from that. That's what gives us real power, honor, omnipotence. Like education is disappointing in a way because it really doesn't live up to any kind of grandiose promise. But yeah, what did you think about the way this began? You know, what ails Faustus? I think you're right that there's something ouroboric about the structure of the whole plot and about this first scene in particular too, where he's sort of now deciding on what his specialization is going to be only after he's received how many doctorates, you know, he has this whole speech, which seems completely counterintuitive. Again, it's a kind of foregone conclusion. He's already studied all of these things and mastered them, according to him, right? He studied law, divinity, and medicine, mastered them. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do any of these things, you know? So it's a performance at the very beginning. It's a sort of performance of rejecting each one of these things. Um, And then at the end, I think the desire is to actually get away from the studying of something and actually do it. He studied divinity. Now I want to be divine. This is all just empty scholarship. I want to actually be on the ground, you know, doing my divine deeds. To go back to the very beginning, to go to the prologue, we get this chorus that is describing Faustus's situation. It gives us the whole history of Faustus. We get his infancy, he's born. First, they say they're going to speak for Faustus in his infancy. Then he's born, which is an odd kind of Ouroboric kind of thing. Anyway, so we hear that he was born in, in Rhode and he goes to Wittenberg, which is the center of Protestant reform at the time and becomes this great scholar, gets all these doctorates. And then we have his downfall. So the prologue says, till swollen with cunning of a self-conceit, his waxen wings did mount above his reach and melting heavens conspired his overthrow. For falling to a devilish exercise and glutted more with learning's golden gifts, he surfeits upon cursed necromancy. Nothing so sweet as magic is to him, which he prefers before his chiefest bliss. And this, the man that in his study sits. So we get this comparison to Icarus, mm-hmm. but some other things in here that are really strange, like, I mean, the most obvious line here is, and melting heavens conspired his overthrow. So the heavens themselves thought that he was getting too high and are conspiring against him. Mm. rather than his own pride taking him up too high and his own self-destruction, you know, at his own hand, if you will. The heavens are basically the actor that is condemning him. So the height is theological excellence. It's theological learning. And Mm. then the punishment, the thing he falls to is the devilish exercise. The punishment is magic or necromancy. So it's like the God is the one who sends him down to the devil. Yeah. There's already, is this his fault? Is this just the way that it is? This is the way that it works when you're a reprobate. So the irony is that theology should be getting you closer to God, but it's doing precisely the opposite. That's right. The other point I think you're making is that, so in the Icarus myth, you fly too high and the sun melts you and the sun is just, 
yes, you can think of the sun as, as a god, but in this case, this is purely a matter of one's own action and then some kind of natural consequence of that action. But here, it sounds more like the displeasure of the gods at hubris, more like a Promethean thing, right? Yeah, and there's even a few lines above that. When he's studying divinity, there's this idea of the fruitful plot of scholarism graced. So he's gracing the fruitful plot of the university with his talents. But of course, we can't help but hear this sort of Garden of Eden echo in that. It's as if any undertaking in theological studies is going to result in your downfall. You know, it's all a trap designed to just usher you off to hell. Um, it's funny because divinity schools these days, as far as I can tell, have a reputation, right? Just for harboring <laughs> atheists, yes. essentially. That's exactly right. And I, I wonder if it's a similar kind of stereotype at the time. And I think Marlowe was subject to that. Not that he went to divinity school, right? But I don't know if something that was attributed to him by someone else who had been arrested, but I'm not sure. Do you mean the, the sedition thing? with Elizabeth, where he was plotting to overthrow the government, but it was because he was a counter-spy. No, it was, um, he was accused of having denied the divinity of Christ, for instance, and a lot of other blasphemous things. Right. Well, this is, I think, the problem of, you know, something we've touched on in many other episodes, the problem of classical education (laughs) is, uh, you know, that it might just make you an atheist and sort of undermine the whole project. At least, you know, a classical education promoted by a Christian society, it could have the opposite effect. (laughs) In a way, it's a spiritual competitor, right? So one can Mm -hmm. see the life of the mind as a kind of spiritual practice, you know, as it was before the, at least in some forms as philosophy, before the advent of Christianity. Then you can either make it the handmaiden of Christianity, or maybe Christianity gets second billing eventually, right? which is part, I think, of the criticism of the scholastics, right, that was being leveled by Erasmus. So one can be overwhelmed by the scaffolding that you're trying to build in order to make a connection to God. (laughs) Yeah, maybe don't do that. Do something else. Well, I think there's a suggestion here, though, in his opening speech. He talks about all the things that he's rejecting. And at the end, when he's describing why divinity doesn't serve, I think there's a suggestion that he's a bad reader. He's not quite as intelligent as he thinks he is. Or of course, the other way to read this is that he hasn't been given the divine insight in order to read things, specifically, you know, the scriptures correctly, precisely because he is a reprobate. So like he says, he's looking at Jerome's Bible and he reads, stipendium peccati mors est, right? The reward of sin is death. He says, he translates it for us, you know, the wages of sin is death. The second half of that line is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ah, okay. He's deliberately leaving out the second half of these things. Same thing with this other part of the Bible that he quotes from John. He provides the translation. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and there's no truth in us. The line that follows that is, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think an audience in the Elizabethan era, being relatively well-versed in the Bible, or or maybe not, I don't know, maybe I'm overestimating this, especially because of what would still be very low levels of literacy. But still, I think the Bible, many parts of it were learned by rote, especially the New Testament. Maybe an audience would know that he's deliberately leaving out God's promises of salvation, or if not deliberately leaving them out, then maybe that's the thing. Is he a bad reader? Is he just rejecting what he doesn't want to see? Or is he 
actually a reprobate and God is literally not allowing him to see the second half of the line. He's setting him up for failure. He's focusing on the inevitability of sin and human imperfection. And then he's cutting out the part where there seems to be a possibility of redemption, right? So it's just eternal death and we sin and that's it. So what are the different reasons he rejects all of these, right? So philosophy, it's just, you know what? We're just going to learn logic. It's empty and we're going to learn how to argue better. What's the point of that? Medicine, you know, I've already mastered that. But in any case, I think the main point is making people healthy. Okay, but what about but they're going to die eventually. Yeah, they're going to die anyway. So what's the point? And then, you know, it's not raising them from the dead or giving them eternal life. And then law, I think he, you know, his study fits a mercenary drudge who aims at nothing but external trash. Too servile and illiberal for me. So you might think of law in relation to justice as something extremely grand, but from the inside, and this is kind of the way any job is, right? It's just work and it can become drudgery like anything else. Um, but also, I think that part of the implication is here that you know you get caught up in what Shakespeare called the fine quillets of the law and all these fine distinctions, endlessly multiplying distinctions, and all for the sake of doing something with petty human concerns, like inheritance law, which I think is the thing he mentions. And then with theology, it sounds like, and so I'm trying to relate all these, maybe you can help me see the arc here because I didn't fully think it up, but with theology, it sounds like there's no insight available or the final insight in theology is that redemption is impossible or that we are powerless or something like that. So ultimately what he's rebelling against is the sense of powerlessness, you know, in light of his desire for omnipotence. And in the end, you know, what he wants is, this is what's disappointing about education is that thinking and action are not the same things. And our thoughts don't directly affect the world, although part of being grandiose and having omnipotence of thought is having kind of the unconscious belief that they can do that. And that can lead to very debilitating conditions like OCD, where people are worried that their negative thoughts are going to affect their loved ones, right, directly. But the truth is our thoughts don't have that power. The world is on the verge of a point where it'll be almost as if that's the case, right? Science looks awfully magical these days, the kind of power that science affords. Uh, so there's something prescient about all these concerns and Dr. Faustus and, and with Frankenstein and all, all these thoughts about alchemy and magic in relation to, and also in the Tempest, you know, in relation to science, I think there's a premonition here of what is actually going to happen with the relationship between thought and technology and what happens in the world. It's going to get very, very amped up, right? But mm. um, even allowing for that, none of these disciplines that we spend all our time devoting ourselves to is anything like being directly active in the world. It's too abstruse and isolated and in our minds. And I could go on about that. But yeah, I think that's an inherent part of the dissatisfaction. And it's one of the downsides of self-consciousness per se, right? We're no longer in the moment and nearly acting creatures, we can get caught up in our own minds and in the minds of others in what they think and in culture. And then, and then the other part of this is just the more education we have, is it powerful or is it just arresting? Does it lead to more indecision and inaction and less courage and less vitality? The kind of critiques that Nietzsche will make, but that Erasmus has already made, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's not enough to study God. We, ha we have to want to be God. We want to make a difference. 
in the world. Yeah. I just want to make a difference. Divine acts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I think what he talks about with the law and divinity are very closely related. Like he quotes matters of inheritance yeah. out of Justinian's law, right? If two people are, are bequeathed the same thing, then one person will get the thing itself and the other its equivalent cash value. This type of stuff. Uh, so it's petty. Stuff. It's petty. And Justinian, of course, his law, his Roman law was deeply influential in the creation of canon law within the church, right? There is a sense of circling the drain here, you know, thinking about the little, little tiny things. I mean, God's grace is often thought of as a kind of economy, right? In which we have like the wages of sin as death, you know, we get mm. um, grace as a kind of infinite economy, but still thought of in economic terms. Marx would call it commodification, maybe, or <laughs> fetishization. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then this is a largely because, I mean, in stuff that we understand, it's a way that we use to think about how God works in our own limited way. But, you know, just someone who's not imbued with the right spirit, shall we say, this all would then look very, very empty to him. It looks like external trash and trash is a word that Marlowe uses in a lot of his plays. He really likes that word. My professor is just such a great line. So I have to, I have to give him credit said something like, you know, magic is the belief that nothing is external trash. Magic is the belief that everything has meaning, you mm. know. Reminds me very much of what you've said in the past about conspiracy theories. This is, I think, intricately related. So in a world in which Faustus's studies have demystified the world for him, they've reduced even God to a case of paltry legacies. Is my soul consigned to heaven or to hell, you know, as it, mm. it depends on which fast track I'm on. And it's all very denatured and demystified when one has studied this so intensely. Magic is that reinvigoration of a kind of divine spirit. It's this idea that everything might be coded with some sort of secret hidden meaning. And I think that is what is attractive to him here. He reduces things to lines and circles, signs, letters, and characters. I, these are those that Faustus most desires. So he wants to kind of reduce the meaning of the word to just the things that make up the word, the letters and the lines that make up the word, which we would think is like going backwards, but it's this sort of magical remystification whereby even the process of reading becomes suddenly foreign to us and it's imbued with a kind of mysticism. I don't know. Yeah. There, no, there's the suggestion too that the magic book that he's reading, maybe it's just the Bible, you know, to a reprobate, maybe the Bible just looks like a bunch of squiggles. Or maybe he's just taking the Bible and turning it upside down or something like that. There's a duality. I think that's a constant theme in the play in which the two things that look like opposites are actually maybe the same thing. You know, maybe a magic book is just a Bible. You know, a lot of this conjuring stuff, you know, he's using the sort of biblical Latin to get these demons to appear. And he sells a soul to the devil in the same way that someone who's really, really cynical would say, well, if you're a Christian, you're just selling your soul to God. So you're making me think again about, well, you're really elaborating what I was calling omnipotence of thought, which is to say, you know, magic has a lot to do with the idea that we might, or the wish that we might use our thoughts to directly affect the world. And I mentioned OCD. So for instance, that's something in which there people engage in kinds of rituals, or even you could call them spells, right? And everything is imbued with significance. So, you know, step on a crack, break your mother's back. Um, some people really do avoid stepping on the cracks and, or, you know, unless I flip the light switch up and down 10 times when I walk into a room, one of my parents is going to die or something might symbolically contaminate me. 
I might have mentioned this before, but there was a show on A&E called, uh, it was about OCD. I think it was just called Obsessed or something like that. But there was a guy on there who every time he saw a certain type of car, he had the idea that he was contaminated. And then he had to ritualistically pretend to wash his arms, not actually wash his arms and hands, but just go through the motions of that and Hmm. would have to do that for some indeterminate amount of time. It's a really horrific and debilitating. And often the ritual is not enough or it doesn't last very long. But yeah, I like what you were saying about, you know, magic is this idea that everything is imbued with significance. So nothing is external trash. And what does external mean there, right? Is that just accidental or not essential or not meaningful? That's what I was thinking. And I think your point hammers that home. Yeah, it doesn't get to the heart of things. It's extraneous. There's real power in thinking and in particular mental development and being a student, which is great, right? Runs completely against the stereotype, for instance, a professor who's completely impractical. (laughs) (laughs) But so from this section as well, maybe this is worth reading. These metaphysics of magicians and necromantic books are heavenly. Lines, circles, scenes, letters, and characters. Aye, these are those that Faustus most desires. Oh, what a world of profit and delight of power, of honor, of omnipotence, is promised to the studious artisan. Hmm. This mention of studious artisan. Makes me think poetry is another way to get at this, but, uh, you know. Yeah, say something (laughs) about that. He doesn't want things to be inert. He wants to create rather than just study what's already been or memorize kind of dictums about ways, a sort of cookie cutter way to understand the world. Like this is what he dislikes, especially about the law or what he says about logic, you know, is to dispute well logic's chiefest end affords this art no greater miracle. He wants the miracle of the thing turned into some transformation, some creation. This is obviously like being godlike is to create something out of nothing, out of the materials one already has, but to affect some sort of transformation on the world. And I think like creativity of any sort is sort of aligned with this. I think the studiousness of Faustus, which involves memorizing case studies and applying them over and over again. Okay, this one is like this one. So this is how we're going to rule in this particular case, because here's the precedent for it. And you're just sort of like stamping something out over and over again. And that same sort of issue with scholasticism is like, okay, well, you know, they have a problem with this element of God, but if we apply this to that, then here's the result we get. You know, there's something dead and anti-creative about that in his view, and he wants the thing reinvigorated. And whether that be turning the scripture upside down and reading some, you know, garbledy gook out of it and therefore proclaiming magic words or sort of rearranging words into something that has a little spark of magic, like a poet would. I think those two things are pretty closely related. And there's, you know, what a poet does at least just thinking of metaphor and the assimilation of different ideas to each other, but the idea that one thing can stand for another metaphorically and that one might extend that to a great degree. That's kind of a divine economy in and of itself, right? It's like if you connect two things together, then you get more than the two things. You get like a third thing. (laughs) It's like you, you have an excess, which is more than just this paltry economy that Faustus dislikes of dividing things up rather it's like a multiplication that happens you know you create something extra yeah and i think it speaks to the idea that ultimately there's a hidden unity to the world right so this is one of the things that metaphor kind of 
reveals is that there are these deep structural isomorphisms, let's say, between things. And speaking of magic, you might have the idea that it's like a voodoo doll or something, right? It's, I make a doll that looks like the thing and I pierce it, that other thing will <laughs> feel pain. But that in poetic imagery, there is some control over the target of the metaphor or, I don't know, before in Much Ado About Nothing, we were talking a little bit about metaphor as a kind of argument, as a way of convincing yourselves of things thinking of someone as being stained, impure and stained because of a illicit relationship or something like that. But yeah, I think that's something for further thought, the relationship between metaphor and magic. But the other thing, you know, speaking of this whole idea of a possible underlying unity, so after he goes on, the angels come and nag him one way and the other, the good angel and the evil angel. And then after that, he's fantasizing about sorry to just skip over the angels like that but (laughs) um it shows you where i'm coming from but he gets excited by the thought of becoming a magician you know i'm glutted with conceit of this and what he's fantasizing about in particular are spirits being able to fetch him anything that he wants or do anything he wants examples of fetching include like getting him gold and pearls and fruits from all over the world and then there's knowledge so some of there's fetching there's doing and there's knowledge of so knowledge, like philosophy and royal secrets and the doing part. It's really like construction and landscaping and fashion and war and political office and like war technologies. That's the way it all breaks down in my notes. But construction meaning like putting a wall of what around the city. I forget the material. But the other thing that happens in there is this phrase that he uses, a resolve me of all ambiguities. Hmm. So how I'm blooded with conceit of this, shall I make spirits fetch me what I please? Resolve me of all ambiguities, literally meaning answer all of his questions. But also I think the implication, I mean, it is for a contemporary reader. I think it would be for a reader back then as well, but just to the resolution of ambiguity in the world and in one's thoughts, the resolution of any ambivalence. It's really interesting line that I hadn't noticed previously because according to him, he's he's already resolved all the ambiguities, right? So that it's strange that there's something that remains that still needs to be worked out, still needs to be cleared up. Yeah, knowledge plays a curious role here because it starts out with him being dissatisfied by all these academic pursuits. And then it's like, okay, I want omnipotence and power. And some of that means getting rich. Some of it's going to mean sex. Some of it's going to mean war or building things, transforming the environment, then here knowledge is still playing this role. What's the point of knowledge if you can just magically do everything you want anyway? Hmm. I thought he had shown that knowledge was already pointless, in other words. Right. And then he now he's fantasizing about a spirit reading him philosophy. What? (laughs) I'll have them read me strange philosophy. Yeah, I thought you just decided to leave academia. And do a tech startup or something. No, anyway. Right. <laughs> right. And influence policy. Um, <laughs> and tell the secrets of all foreign kings. Yeah, it seems like what he's interested in knowing. Like he wants to just eavesdrop. He just wants to know what other people are talking about. Not necessarily towards any particular end. I mean, ultimately, like the irony of this play, what makes it like really, really funny is that here, as you say, he's imagining all this various great deeds that he's going to perform. In the end, like he basically sells his soul to the devil for a couple of like cute magic tricks. One of which is like, 
a Looney Tunes skit where he beats up the Pope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, he's basically a tourist. Like, it's basically like he won the big vacation on the Price is Right. Right, right. He's basically, so what does he do? He goes around being a tourist. Um, Mm -hmm. He gets to play some pranks. And apparently there's 24 years of this. I don't know how you do that for 24 years. but. I had this in my notes as well. I thought this was incredibly ironic what he ends up actually using his time for. What else does he do, right? He asks for a wife and he just gets a devil with fireworks in her hair, which is fantastic. Then he's hot like, this whore. isn't a wife. And yeah, hot, hot which is great. It's, to hear Richard Burton say that, by the way, in that version is great. I've got to see that. I can't believe I didn't. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen that yet because I heard about it. Doesn't Elizabeth Taylor play Helen of Troy? Yeah. And it's a bit ridiculous. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, they have to like shoehorn her in as much as they can. And of course she has no speaking part at all. And it's weird, but it's still great. It's still worth seeing. That's so funny. Yeah. So they play a prank on the Pope. Um, he gives someone horns. Wagner seems to be able to do about as much magic as Faustus without any of Faustus's training. Though maybe he's picked up a bit eavesdropping on his own. Yeah, and then Robin picks it up from Wagner, right? So mm-hmm. he's able to do a little bit as well. Yeah. It's like a pyramid scheme. <laughs> <laughs> or a plague. Faustus, you know, brags about how he's cured plagues, but he seems to have started another one. And yeah, and then he does this whole thing for the emperor where he reproduces Alexander and Alexander's paramour. Okay, so he gets to hang out with famous people. Like He gets to be famous and hang out with famous people. That's another aspect of this. Yeah, he's like that David Copperfield guy who gets to go and, (laughs) you know, um, like, is he actually that great or is he just there to like play for the birthday party for some like rich person's (laughs) kid? And then, (laughs) you know, that speaks to like the sort of anti-creational aspect in some of these metaphors that you mentioned, like when he says magic that hath ravished me. And you also mentioned earlier in that same speech, how I am glutted with conceit of this or in the prologue when he says, or when the chorus says that Faustus is swollen with cunning of a self-conceit. So this is idea that he's just pregnant with himself, right? Like he's not actually creating anything new. He's not doing anything worthwhile. He's just sort of like playing with himself, basically. Did it not occur to him to write a book or do something creative? <laughs> right. Well, and then these things that he's producing out of thin air, like Helen of Troy or whatever, they're not even really... They're just holograms, basically. Exactly. He's just, he invented the TV or something, you know? Right. And if we think about what it literally is, I mean, it's what it literally is, is a man, an actor, dressed as a devil, dressed as a woman, you know? Like if we think about the staging of this too, it gets pretty recursive. Yeah. The one other thing, so we mentioned being famous, hanging out with famous people, being a tourist, going to Rome, playing pranks. But the other thing, after he signs away his soul, which we can talk about that scene too, but the first thing he wishes for is a wife. Mm -hmm. And that's when the hot whore comes in. You know, that's like Mephistopheles has to... Is that the first time we've said the name Mephistopheles? I think it is because I trip over it. Uh, well, that's interesting. Say it three times and Michael Keaton shows up. But <laughs> <laughs> why is it important for Mephistopheles to distract Faustus from having a wife? But then the other thing he does is he wants to know things, right? Again, definition of, he wants a definition of what hell is. And then actually that's before he wishes for a wife. Then he wants to raise spirits. This comes up a number of times. Like, can I raise spirits? Can I raise spirits? I want to raise spirits. That's what I want to do. And then does he raise any spirits except for Helen? I guess he does, right? He does Alexander. But anyway, as a party trip. But does he? 
Does he but or he is doesn't. it just devils? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Exactly. But then after the raising spirits question, he's like, okay, well, why don't you give me a book on astronomy and then also give me a book on botany? So again, we get this same collapse back into, first of all, there's a question of why Mephistopheles can't just with a wave of the hand give him omniscience and let him know all that without him having to read inefficiently read books in the same way that he would have to do if he were still being a student or being a teacher. So I found that very interesting that it's like wife, raising spirits, astronomy, botany. Let's go. (laughs) Not, okay, I want all the money in the world. Give me a private jet. Yeah, in the end, he doesn't even really get to rule over any country or like none of the things that he wanted and the speech where he describes everything that he would do, none of that happened. And then for some reason, when he goes back to Wittenberg in the end, the options are walk or take a horse. It's like, what? Haven't you guys been like riding around through the air, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a really interesting scene. I wrote a whole paper on that. So I have a whole whole thing about that. But before we get there. The elevator speech. Okay. Yeah, no, that's good. Right. Well, actually elevator speech is a good term. I'm happy to skip there, except just prior to that, I think like, I don't know if you had this experience, but for me, it's just really, really hard to keep track of everything that happens in the play because it's just the same thing over and over again. The scene will start and Faustus will be like, oh man, I shouldn't have done this. I'm really upset. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Then uh, the devils are just like distracting him or he gets yelled at you know, for saying God's name out loud. And Lucifer's like, don't do that. You should only say my name. And he's like, you're right. You're right. It's fine. It's fine. Everything will be fine. And then they do some magic trick and then the scene ends and there's a little like comic scene in the middle with Wagner or Robin. And then the whole thing starts all over again. And so by the time you get to the end of the play, you're just like, wait, what happened in what scene? Like I was getting Alexandra's paramour confused with Helen of Troy. Like, I don't know if you had that experience, but I just feel like it's really hard to keep track of what happens when. And I wonder if it even matters. The first time, it's just all a jumble. I mean, it, it's just like, okay, I might as well not, almost not have read it. And then the second time I'm sitting down and I'm just writing down all the notes and I'm like structuring them. So I have a better sense now of like the overarching quote unquote plot, if you want to call it that, right? Mm-hmm. There's very little, I think I read, you know, in some of the secondary reading I did for this, I think someone said, well, this is a play that has no middle. Hmm. Yeah. That's uh, here. I'm <laughs> selling my soul to the devil. And then it's, oh shit, I sold my soul to the devil. <laughs> now I'm going to hell. And what happens in between, again, it's just quite, doesn't live up to the grandiose. Before he sells his soul to the devil, he calls in Valdez and Cornelius, his magician friends, to show him how to do it. These books, thy wit and our experience will basically make us all rich and famous and omnipotent. And, and then you have to ask the question, well, why have Valdez and not Cornelius done, not done that for themselves already? <laughs> yeah. What do they need Faustus for? You know, I love these incongruities because I don't think they're just accidents. They're forms of irony. That's why the whole you know, office version of this comes up because there's an element of confusion. These people are actually quite confused and by some kind of luck, <laughs> they get the devil conjured up. Yeah, exactly. Well, and the devil you know, makes a point of saying, Mephistopheles makes a point of saying becomes kind of on his own accord or something. That's right. They kind of accidentally conjure him. Um, yeah, Mephistopheles uses that phrase per accidents, saying, well, no, you, Faustus, didn't make me do anything. I can only follow Lucifer's instructions. So, Yeah, he does this kind of like logical reasoning with Faustus, which is pretty funny. He seems to know just as much scholastic logic as Faustus does. 
But what you're talking about here, I think it's kind of the hallmark of the play, this idea of like, why does any of this have to happen? Or why does the play even have no middle? Or, you know, I said before, like this ouroboric quality to the play, everything is a foregone conclusion. You go around and around in circles and you don't really get anywhere. Even just like in the very beginning after the prologue, Faustus enters already in his study. Like, how does that happen? How is it possible that he could like enter, but already be there? You know, the same thing with the prologue, sort of like speaking for him in his infancy for Faustus as an infant, but then Faustus has to be born over the course of the prologue. Like there's something just really strange about this. And so in the sequence where they're walking in act four, scene one, where they're walking from the court of the emperor, Charles V, back to Wittenberg, something happens there where they're kind of performing the paradox at the heart of the play. They have to walk back a distance of many, many miles, and yet they're there and Faustus enters into his study in the course of like 40 lines where they're walking. So there's this part where Faustus says, now Mephistopheles, the restless course that time doth run with calm and silent foot, shortening my days and thread of vital life, calls for the payment of my latest years. Therefore, sweet Mephistopheles, let us make haste to Wittenberg. And then Mephistopheles says, what, will you go on horseback or on foot? Faustus says, nay, till I am past this fair and pleasant green, I'll walk on foot. So it seems like a relatively uneventful little section of dialogue. But as I dug into it, I realized how strange this metaphor is. So this is the restless course that time doth run with calm and silent foot. So he's imagining, I guess, his life as like a track maybe a path that extends in one direction, like through the woods or something, or even better, like a track that's sort of circular, like a running track. So that's his life and time is running on it. But that's kind of odd because like the track in the ground, the set thing, you know, the thing that's sort of like in the earth, the permanent thing is Faustus's life. And time is the impermanent thing, the runner that's going along it. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems strange. Like these metaphors don't even add up. Like the runner then is shortening the length of the track by running on it. Like, how is that possible? And then he says, you know, the thread of vital life too. Like, okay, so he's imagining his life as being like the thread of the fates, which fine, that's a common metaphor, but don't we all have like in the Greek mythology, isn't it that our our life, the thread of our life is a set length, right? And our life only ends when the, fates cut the thread with the scissors. So it's also shortening the thread of his life. Well, that's really strange because our life has a set length, but also if they're shortening the thread, then aren't they making cuts to the thread, which should themselves be fatal? Hmm. So nothing kind of adds. And then it calls for the payment of my latest year. So what is it doing? It's like the track of one's life is calling for its own shortening. Like if you actually dig into so many of these metaphors, they don't actually make any sense. And somehow you kind of get to the end, like you just arrive at the end without kind of knowing how you got there. So something similar is happening, I think, in the course of the play where like we're seeing the whole term of Faustus's servitude, this 24 years, it's happening within the span of, you know, however long it takes to stage this play, two or three hours. Like we think we're seeing 24 years, but it's really down to the space of a couple of hours. In fact, like the end of the life- Very little actually happens. (laughs) Very little happens. And really the majority of the time is spent in the last hour or so of his life, right? Like the end is Mm. magnified and magnified. Nothing really happens. They don't really get anywhere. So I I kind of describe this- Just some high, some second act hijinks. Right. They're walking on a magical treadmill. 
everything is kind of squeezed and then somehow they're at the end. The figures of speech are squeezed together. The action of the play is kind of all squeezed together. And then somehow it's the end of his life and he has to be dragged down to hell. Yeah. It's so strange. Like the, like the metaphors are performing the plot of the play. Interesting. This is what you wrote your paper on? Yeah. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited about this one little part of the... No, but it, it explains so much of this bizarre wordplay that happens over the course of the play mm. or, or even just like in the prologue, you know, or the fact that he's pregnant with himself. He's arrived already here. He enters already on the stage. There's something... Um, you might call it stillborn about the play and about Faustus as a character, which I think speaks to this idea of him being a reprobate, the foregone conclusion of, of the state of his soul, the fact that the people coming to the play already know what's going to happen to him. I think all of that is kind of tied up in this really clever kind of magic trick that Marlowe plays by tying this all together over the course of a couple of hours. What are some versions of Faustianism that afflict us? As I've said, you could read self-consciousness as a kind of bargain with the devil as well and as, as what it means to fall or something like that. But if you were to think about this kind of thing in more mundane terms, maybe you would think about the pretensions of the intellectual or the artist, someone who thinks they're going to write a great novel or write something that's going to change the world. And I think ultimately, thinking about myself and my own ambitions, like what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of all this? Go through that Faust thing in the very beginning. Why, why, why do any of this, right? And mm -hmm. I think for people who are, you know, let's just think specifically about writers, you use that phrase, make a difference. People do want to make a difference, but not in the same way as someone who's right, going to go out and start a nonprofit organization to feed the poor. It's a different kind of difference. It's a little more grandiosely oriented because it's about influencing people. And, you know, if you're writing political columns, it might be as simple as I don't want to convince people of the right political opinions. But if you're writing poetry or novels, it could be, well, I just want to entertain people, but it could also be, well, I want to improve people. Ultimately, I want people to be less stupid. <laughs> I want them to not be so idiotic. And that will actually reduce a lot of the crazy, horrible stuff that happens in the world, right? There's a kind of conceit or hope or dream that if we educate people, we civilize them and that some of the things that afflict the world, like war, for instance, would be less common. Or, or for instance, that if I educate people in a certain way, then that is important to living in a liberal society that has just laws and doesn't break down in chaos and, and those sorts of things. So it's a fantasy of enlightenment, of enlightening the world. Hmm. And maybe, you know, for a philosopher, walking out of the cave, figuring out what the truth is, bringing it back in. I think the idea there is improvement of people. And if you look at that psychologically, part of it is just to make them more worthy of love, of our love, or whatever relationship we're going to have with people because people are so complicated and ambiguous and our relationships to them are ambivalent and ambiguous. So if you can perfect your objects of desire or the people to whom you're related, then they can become worthy of relating. And this gets back to the phrase of Faust's phrase, resolve all ambiguities, which is to say mm -hmm. to resolve the ambiguity of having the imperfection of human relationships and the way they're fraught with conflict and loving people despite their faults and all of that stuff. So this speaks to some of Faust's manic motive, right? Which is to avoid mourning the imperfections of others and hold on to something 
ideal. So his omnipotence is not just about the literal level of wanting knowledge or riches or any of that stuff. It's about wanting to hold on to this ideal relationship to people, which is like the idealized relationship to our parents, but also has something to do with our, if we're believers, to our relationship to God, right? So in a way, he's trying to, um, I don't know, maybe substitute the world for God or something like that. That sounds like eternal life, right? Like just the desire, like, like medicine is not enough for him because he wants to live forever. So that would be the substitution of the world for God in a way, right? Like the riches that are supposed to be waiting for us in heaven, he doesn't quite believe in, right? So he would want an internal stay on earth. He would want to continually make a meal out of his earthly life, like the feast that never ends. But that's the way that heaven is usually thought of traditionally, you know, as like an eternal feast. Mm-hmm. Instead, he wants to create that on earth for himself out of a kind of like, like what you're saying, out of a kind of knowledge of almost like eating the earth. Is that going too far? Or no, no, I think that? that's, that's good. But then we might say that what is Marlowe then doing in creating this play? Is he attempting to edify us by telling us, hey, don't sell your soul to the devil? Is that the message here? And is that a message people need to hear? Mm-hmm. Don't put anything in writing, seems to be the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the lesson. Why the devil needs it in writing is another question. But yeah, Right. Let's actually go to that scene. Yeah. So this is act two, scene one. So we just had an interlude with Wagner and Robin, where basically Wagner impresses Robin into magical service. Kind of a replication of the relationship between Faustus and Wagner. So you're going to be my, my helper. So then this is at the point, right at the beginning of act two, scene one, Faustus is going to say, now Faustus must thou needs be damned and canst thou not be saved. What boots it then to think of God or heaven? Away with such vain fancies and despair. Despair in God and trust in Beelzebub. Now go not backward, no Faustus be resolute. Why waverest thou? O something soundeth in my ears. Abjure this magic, turn to God again. I was like, huh, where have I heard this abjure (laughs) abjure this magic before? Right. The tempest and yeah, this rough magic. What is it? This rough magic I hear abjure. Um, Drown your book, Faustus. Yeah, exactly. And then we go on to, he turns away from that and he has the idea that, well, God loves thee not. God doesn't actually love me. And we get a little bit of the good and bad angels struggling to. I love that. What's a bad angel? Yeah, right. (laughs) And then he develops this idea that, well, nothing can hurt me. Religion is basically foolish. It's lunacy. Think only of honor and wealth and nothing can hurt him if he has Mephistopheles by his side. Mephistopheles says that if, if you want me to wait on you, you'll have to buy my service with your soul. Sort of paraphrasing there. A deed of gift with thine own blood for that security craves great Lucifer. Why the legalities? And this is something that Lucifer and Mephistopheles are going to use to keep Faustus from repenting, right? They're going to say, well, you made a deal. You signed a contract. It would be unjust. They appeal to the concept of justice. Um, it would be unjust for you to try and get out of it. Even though the good angel is telling Faustus that actually, you know, if you just repent, you're, you're still, <laughs> you can still save yourself. Yeah. It seems like Lucifer is just as much of a Justinian as God is. Um, <laughs> right. Both of them have the, the higher law of law. And I guess like capitalism or something <laughs> like you have to buy this. 
Higher law is interesting. It's an interesting phrase because it there's no overarching authority to enforce a contract, right? Between the devil and, and Faustus, right? There's either force or there's the law based on society and a monopoly of force by the powers that be. So the government enforces the contract, but we're just enforcing our own contracts. It doesn't make much sense. There's a legal agreement outside of any real legal framework. So it's one of the oddities. Any kind of sell your soul to the devil story, I think the irony is pretty obvious. This gets to the kind of scariness of this sort of Calvinistic predestination problem, right? Because the higher law is God's law, supposedly. And therefore it's like, you have to be damned. Like the thing that's enforcing your damnation is God in a weird way. Like it's a very strict economy. There's no sort of supernumerary economy of grace that can save you from the brink. I mean, we might even question when he's at the beginning of the scene, he hears this voice abjure this magic turn to God again. Like, is that the voice of grace? We don't know. Does he have a chance at salvation? We don't know. But it seems like, yeah, like this contract law, which is higher than Lucifer's law, is that like higher than God's law too? Or is it God's law basically saying you have to sell your soul to the devil? <laughs> like it's, it's a sort of like logical hiccup. Mm-hmm. That security craves great Lucifer. <laughs> it's like the contract is security. It's like, well, if you don't live up to your end of it, I'm going to take this piece of paper to who? You know, who are you going to show it to, Lucifer? Right. And then Faustus asks some questions. I think we all might want to ask about how any of this makes sense. It's really questioning the whole mythology around all of this, right? That's what Marlowe, I think, is doing. Or questioning maybe the utility of it. So Faustus will say, you know, what good is my soul to Lucifer? And Mephistopheles' response is basically to Lucifer likes misery and company. And the more people he can get down into his kingdom, the more soothing it is to have other people suffering with him. <laughs> so he doesn't have to suffer alone. Yeah. So very, very interesting response. Maybe this is a delaying tactic. He then yeah. asks, have you any pain that tortures others? Like, oh, well, tell me about that. Are you in pain? Um, maybe he's trying to buy some time. And to his credit, Mephistopheles is honest, right? Lucifer will later on say, oh, hell is full of delights. But when he mm, mm-hmm. distracts him with the seven deadly sins pageant. But here, yeah, Mephistopheles is very upfront. We sort of feel sorry for him. It's like, are we supposed to pity the devil? And we should remember he's dressed up like a, a friar the whole time because in the beginning, <laughs> Faustus there is so is much like, fan service. Yeah, right. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a nice little joke, but at the expense of Catholics, but it uh, sends <laughs> Ephistopheles off. And he's like, I'm not going to have you be looking like a devil all the time. That's weird. Let's just dress up as a friar and then we can go to work. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, he doesn't want to face the reality of it. He has to dress it up, you know, in something that will satisfy a Protestant audience. Yeah, Faustus says that, you know, that's a more suitable look for a devil is the garb of a friar, yeah. Yeah, but there's something about, like, he's not ever really facing the reality. In spite of the fact that he has a demon in front of him, he continually denies the existence of hell. I think he maintains the sort of pagan idea that hell isn't really a place of torment, even though he has the testimony of Mephistopheles standing right in front of him, telling him that he's going to be tormented down there. Then there's this really funny and kind of odd moment where he's trying to write the contract in his own blood, but the blood keeps clotting. It keeps clotting and then running, clotting and then running. And Faustus is kind of trying to write meaning into the clotting of his blood. He says, what might the staying of my blood portend? Is it unwilling I should write this bill? 
Why streams it not that I may write afresh? So he's wondering if there's some divine will in his blood clotting and not being able to write. And then when the blood runs so that he can write with it, he's like, oh, okay, well, this does mean I should write. I should give away my soul. Finally, he says, Faustus gives to thee his soul. Ah, there it stayed. Why shouldst thou not? Is not thy soul thine own? Then write again, Faustus gives to thee his soul. So he's like sort of unable to write it. And finally, he's like, you know what? I should just be able to do this because isn't my soul my own to give away to whoever I want? So he's sort of reading maybe some divine intervention and this idea of the blood clotting. And then finally, he's like, you know what? I'm the one who has the authority to give away my soul as I want. And that gets the blood flowing enough that he can then write it for himself. So he seems to be the divine actor in that little fanciful moment. So after that, he asks Mephistopheles, where is hell? And Mephistopheles gives this answer, under the heavens. And this is really like the first request, right? After he's actually signed the contract. He does mention previously raising up the spirits, actually, when he gives this very legalistic speech about, okay, here's what I get for signing the contract. Here's what Lucifer is going to do for me, which is a kind of funny little legalistic speech. But then it's Mephistopheles is ask what thou wilt. And then where is hell under the heavens? And then Faustus objects to that. And Mephistopheles says, hell hath no limits nor is circumscribed in one self place for where we are is hell and where hell is there must we ever be. This is one of the cooler lines in the whole play. And it's something it gets paid off later. And it, First of all, here, hell hath no limits nor is circumscribed in one self place for where we are in hell and where hell is, there must we ever be. And to conclude, when all the world dissolves and every creature shall be purified, all places shall be hell that is not heaven. At which point Faustus says, well, he thinks hell's a fable, which is a really odd thing to do <laughs> to say when you are talking to a devil. Why would the hell be a fable any more than the devil? And Mephistopheles says, I think so till experience changed thy mind. And then Faustus' pain in the afterlife is an old wife's tale. Mephistopheles says, well, I'm actually a counterexample to that. And Faustus is surprised. So, you know, basically like, even while you're here walking and disputing, you're in hell. This is kind of paid off later on. We get more about hell. So yeah, I thought that was one of the more interesting. Let's talk about what hell is. This is Miltonian, right? Doesn't Lucifer say, which way I fly is hell, myself am hell? Something like that. What can we make out of that? I don't know. So it's a little bit of a theological discussion in a way, right? That's happening within the play. And part of what's happening is the very first thing that Faustus wants after signing away his soul is an answer to some theological questions, which is a very interesting mm. reason for signing away his soul. <laughs> if that's really the core motive. It's like, because that's, you know, hey, divinity didn't really solve any of these, you know, studying theology didn't solve any of these questions for me. So why don't I go ahead and consign myself to eternal damnation and then I'll get the answers that I want about God and the devil and hell and this and that. Yeah, this is another sort of like putting the card before the horse kind <laughs> yes, of uh, yes. element of the play. Yeah, so that's the first thing that he asks then is is to get knowledge of what hell is. That's really interesting. And that because yeah. I thought it was the wife, you know. Yeah, the um, wife happens right. right after that. Yeah. Yeah. We unfortunately are like Faustus are running out of time. What's the fancy way he says it? Someone's running and there's a thread and I forget. (laughs) (laughs) 
the restless chorus that time doth run with calm and silent foot is uh, running out of time. Yes. The hour is <laughs> like going to strike soon and all the, yes, whatever deal we've made <laughs> that's allowing this podcast <laughs> to come to fruition, we're going to have to pay. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to transition into Postscript and discuss, have another 20 minutes or so of discussion there. And we're going to get finally to this final, one of these final, I mean, I guess the final scenes. One of them where Helena Troy appears and then the other one where he does a lot of complaining before he finally is damned. <laughs> but. Bummer. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. To get ad-free episodes and episodes of our after show, Postscript, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Also, this podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other Airwave shows like Food with former New York Times food journalist and best-selling author Mark Bittman and Movie Therapy in which Siskel and Ebert meets Dear Abby. That's airwavemedia.com. Mm-hmm.